The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone, to tonight's week seven of our eight-week class on dependent co-arising. We'll have our last class next Monday. Take a few weeks off, just so you know. The next class then will begin. I think the third week in March. And it will be, I believe, a four-week class on the three wholesome and unwholesome roots that the Buddha talks about. So that's just a heads up. And we have been, like I mentioned in the guided sit, we have been trying to contemplate our situation as a human being, just training our mind to observe in the subjective sense, not objective, but the subjective sense of me, what it's like to be me with the mind and body, and getting, trying to get really good at, like when I flash on me, then what I'm seeing is this dynamic of mind and body as this cycling of suffering, because that's who we are. We are dependent co-arising. That's what, that was the conceptual model that the Buddha offers us to replace self-view. Because right? we, we just operate with self-view. But now, now I know it's kind of complicated. It seems complicated, but it's not. And we can keep it really simple. right? But So we have our normal self-view, this is happening to me and I don't like it, or this is happening to me and I like it, or this is happening to me and I don't know whether I like it or don't like it. I mean, that's sort of our normal position. But the one thing we're sure of, it's happening to me, right? And then I do stuff about what's happening to me. I ignore it, I do this, I do that. And the Buddha says, how's that working for you? And we say, not so well, and he says, well, try to check this out. You know, train your mind to see this dynamic of me having a mind and body, this moment, the subjective experience of this moment. Practice seeing it as this dance of past causes, present effects, present causes, future effects, right? And that dance just keeps going. So, you know, as we take birth into this moment, right, part of what's taking birth is sensitivity. And, I mean, this is just an interesting place in the Buddhist psychology. It's like, how do all those dispositions show up? You know, all the unfinished business, all the neurotic, tendencies <clears throat> to be greedy, you know, to, to sort of be identified with liking and not liking. But they're there, right? It's just there. I mean, if you dangle something in front of me that I'm conditioned to really like, you're like, I'm going to see that. I mean, even if there's a lot of wisdom, liking is still going to arise. It's just hopefully there'll be enough wisdom to realize, yeah, that's liking, that's like wanting to take that thing before anybody else gets it, right? Or before it's no longer offered. 
And that, that will just be there. You know, like if I said, you know, let's say there's, whatever, 60 people in the room, and I said, I have 55 um, beautiful caramel apples sitting on the table in the lobby. Please take one if you want. It's like, not everyone, but many of you. I mean, I would just have to pick the right food to get all of you, you know. (laughs) But we're all kind of like, how do I make sure I'm not the last five people leaving the room? Right? Or, you know, even something more impressive than (laughs) caramel apple. You know, we'd be we'd be really strategic. We'd be really personalizing the experience. Like it would be personally unfair or personally very disappointing. Or some of you, you know, would be like, I'll just be one of the last out. I'll let them have it. Right? And that that could be your own sort of like I'll bear the cross of not having a caramel apple. I mean, we have an infinite number of ways to suffer, to kind of get tight about experience. And so the Buddha is saying, okay, if you want out, then you have to practice stepping back in a sense, and you're looking at the pattern over and over again as a natural process. That's the key. Because if it's a natural process, then that means it's operating because of supporting causes. That's that line we've read many times, right? The very first week, I think I kind of gave it as a homework assignment. You know, when there's this, there's that. With the cessation of this, the cessation of that. With the arising of this, there will be the arising of that. When this ceases to arise, that also ceases to arise. So it's this, it's, <clears throat> it's not this very simple deterministic thing because it's both what arising out of the past affecting, but what's showing up in the present too, like how I'm relating. So the, the kind of causal unfolding is complex, but it's still very lawful or conditional. And then, so, so, so much of what we're doing is just developing a more honest and clear and wise understanding of what's happening. That's a such a powerful liberating thing in itself. And and it's like at some point something comes online. And that's what we're talking about these last two weeks, right? We get to talk about liberation. Which in the Buddhist teachings, that also has to be an impersonal natural process. Right? It's not you or me who kind of do the liberation. It's just a natural thing that happens when the conditions are there. And so one of the initial conditions that has to be there, there has to be, you know, in this realm of being a human being, a body and a mind, a sensitive body and a mind, right? Sensitive body, mind, with some unfinished business. Oh, and I was going to make this point earlier, like this is a bit of a conundrum in Buddhist psychology, like how does what's unfinished get transferred moment to moment, right? Like all my existential unfinished business, here it is, 
But now there's a new moment. How did it get transferred from that moment to this moment and then to the next moment? It's just an interesting question. So it's like, oh, there's this storehouse consciousness or there's this all these latent dispositions that somehow exist somewhere and get but you know just in biological science how you know like uh, I don't know how many years of evolutionary history but it's all there you know in the the embryo the sort of simple right the whole thing and I don't know if you've seen if not Google like the human embryo and how it develops and it's like all of life on earth the evolutionary uh, evolutionary history of life on earth in in a kind of a simple way expresses itself through that 9 month period you know so there's that little tail like we imagine you know the pictures we saw in high school biology of the early creatures and the oceans that you know dominated the earth for so many millions of years all the way to you know at some point we start to look like a cute baby, which is also just one of those genetic dispositions to sort of go gaga over what looks like a baby, right? But, but there's all that information is there, which is sort of amazing. So somehow that's happening moment to moment, getting passed on. Another image that I think Andy Olensky used, this Buddhist scholar, is like a hologram, right? How holograms have a way of holding all the information, right? It's all there. And it's, and it's distributed in a way that if you interrupt part of the hologram, the rest of it still has all the information. In a, in a little bit of the same way that, you know, in biological science, the DNA. Like at some point in the development of the embryo, it's like the cells decide, okay, now this is all I can do. But in the early stage, you know, it's sort of like they're not differentiated. Something could be a leg or something could be the spleen or something, right? But at some point, there's a tipping point where they become committed. No, no, I can't do anything else to further this system along. I'm in for being the liver, you know, being part of the liver, being part of what becomes the liver. So anyway, this is, this is happening like somehow I'm a neurotic guy now and I'm a neurotic guy now and I'm a neurotic guy now. Now how does that happen? It's happening. So we're studying this. We're studying the lawfulness of it. And at some point, the mind, wisdom in the mind, comprehends it enough that faith naturally arises. It's not like you're being a good spiritual seeker because you have faith or you have confidence. It's just something comes online. It's a little bit like when you watch children messing with something, you know, like a three-year-old, two, two three-year-olds, and then they kind of get it. Even like with walking, you know, they kind of, but at some point they just, there's that tipping point of mastery. They get it. And it's not like somebody got, it's like that hologram, right? It's just something comes online. There's enough 
pieces there that, in a way, it's hard to forget at that point. And that's sort of what the wisdom sees about suffering. And that's the hardest thing, really, that initial being curious about suffering instead of just reacting to suffering and stress by closing down, right? Denial, distraction is one approach. Being hopeful, trying to get salvation is another approach to suffering. Wanting other people to hurt is the third approach to suffering. Like, I'm hurting. I'll feel better if the rest of you are hurting, right? And that's, that's what we feel so strongly compelled to do. But the practice, you know, is to get interested. So that's why the Buddha offered this teaching. He meant it to be provocative. So we'd pick it up, we'd think about it, and then we begin to sort of use it to look at our actual moment-to-moment experience. So when we sit down, you know, like at the beginning of a set or having a quiet moment any point during the day, we notice that somehow the neurotic person I've seen in the past is showing up again now. I mean, not exactly the same, but a lot the same. That unfinished business has somehow somehow, magically got transferred to this moment. All the dispositions, you know, they're here all of a sudden. There's a sensitive person with dispositions. And like that, we can get really good at any moment we drop in, that's what we see. I'm sensitive, and I've got unfinished business. I'm not perfectly content. I'm not perfectly satisfied. I'm not perfectly free. That's what I mean by dispositions, right? There's stuff stirring in my heart. I'm sensitive. And then part of being sensitive is stuff is coming at us all the time. right? That's what sensitivity reveals. So here we are with all these dispositions, the unfinished business, and we're sensitive in a realm where sense experience is just like thrown at us. One moment, I mean, just thousands really of things in each moment. We don't notice all the stuff coming our way. right? We just can catch a l- little bits. And then each thing, each contact, each sense experience reverberates those dispositions. So if I see something really beautiful, then anything in the sort of dispositional storehouse that's related to the sense contact, it's, it sort of somehow comes to the surface and affects perception and feeling tone and what I'm going to do, what I'm inclined to re- how I'm inclined to react to that experience. Is making sense? Right? And so this is what we're, we're training. Like when we're being mindful, we're not like trying to be with the breath. We're trying to see things as they actually are. And the breath is just a stabilizing object that can help the attention, that calm, clear presence, stabilize, right? Any sort of meditation object is just a skillful means to be able to see more clearly. What do we want to see? The cycles of suffering, dependent co-arising. You don't need to use those words. You just want to see, like, what the hell's going on? (laughs) You know? Like, how come it's this way? Not conceptually, but as a felt, embodied experience. How come it's this way? How come things are tight? How come things are heavy? How come things are difficult? 
how come I'm, I'm not perfectly content and free? Because that's actually what the heart is interested in. You know, like, how does suffering come to be? It's a very pragmatic and skillful question. How does whatever suffering I'm experiencing, however subtle, right? it might be just a little heaviness in the heart, a little defendedness in the heart and body. How does the suffering come to be? That's what wisdom, real wisdom would be interested in. And how can it cease? How does the suffering come to be? And how can it cease? When there are what supporting causes does this suffering come to be? And when there aren't those supporting causes or there are other factors present, does that suffering cease? That's what wisdom is interested in. So we see, you know, faith arises because we see how suffering is happening. Faith initially doesn't arise because we're free. It arises because for the first times and then with some more and more uh, momentum and consistency, we're really seeing the cycles of suffering, me, the dynamic of a mind and body and how it keeps ending up being tight. We're just seeing it more and more clearly as a natural phenomenon without judgment. And when, when we see it as a, a natural phenomena, right, then it's subject to the laws of nature. Like if I'm really just bad and I deserve to suffer, you know, like if that's my conception of what's going on, well then that, that, that has a sort of solidity Right? Oh, I have to suffer because I'm bad. You know, it's like tautological. I'm suffering because I'm bad, and I have to suffer because I'm bad. You know? And it sort of feeds. It's sort of like a lot of the ways that self view gets reinforced is well, I'm suffering. So clearly there's me. There's a separate me here because it's so apparent to me that I'm suffering. I'm having a hard time right now. I'm really excited right now. So, because this is, this is important to understand, like the role of seeing suffering is an insight. It's really unique to the Buddhist teachings how this seeing suffering is what's liberating. Seeing how suffering arises and ceases is liberating that we really start there. It's so. This is what I think a lot of us found when we first got started, so trustworthy. You know, for someone, for a person to say, you know what, they're suffering in life, that's so like, oh, I, I think I can trust you <laughs> because you're kind of naming it. You're naming what should be named. And, and I kind of immediately align with that, right? So sometimes when... When we begin reading or hearing about these teachings from the Buddha and we catch that piece, we realize this seems like a pretty grounded, pretty trustworthy set of teachings. I wonder what else the Buddha says, what else he has for instructions, right? We're willing to listen. So we're seeing that, we're seeing those cycles, you know, like they say, uh, some of the more recent 
uh, psychological research. You know, we have to do something 10,000 times before we become a master or an expert. Is it Malcolm Gladwell wrote that book? I forget which one it was of his. Anybody remember? What is it? Tipping point where he talks about you have to do something 10,000 times or something. Like 10,000 sits. Or maybe it's 10,000 days of retreat. <laughs> How many years is that? A long time. Maybe 10,000 sits. Even that take a while. But uh, so we have to see the cycles of suffering 10,000 times and then, or whatever, and then there's enough space, enough perspective that this, the mind sort of, this organic understanding arises like, I'm not going to contribute to this. Right? That's the sila. Some of you know that word. Usually it gets translated as ethical conduct or integrity. But it's really this part of what sila is, is that hiri otapa. That some of you know that Pali phrase. That like really wholesome concern, wholesome care. Like I don't want to contribute to suffering for myself or for others. I don't know much, but I know that. There's enough suffering in the world. There's enough suffering here. I don't want to add to it. And that becomes like this beacon in our heart and mind. Like I don't want to contribute to suffering. And what's the opposite of that? You could, we could call it negligence. Like another word in the Buddhist tradition that's quite important is apamata which is sometimes translated as vigilance. Um, and that's actually the last thing the Buddha said before he died. You know, Practice with vigilance. Don't go back to sleep. Don't be negligent. Because that's the turning point where it's like when we feel we're basically screwed. You know, life is a mystery, can't be mastered, I'll just ride whatever good fortune, whatever good luck I can kind of find or fall into. I'm just going to ride it to the end of my life. Hope I have a relatively good run. I mean, you know, that's so crazy when we say it out loud. Like, I just want to be happier than other people. You know, I just want to be in the top half of happy people or of people. I don't... Because that's how our mind works. We really have a comparing mind. And if we're the least happy person, we really suffer. And even if we're miserable, but we're less miserable than everyone else, we feel weirdly good about that. So that would be that negligence would be the opposite. And so the, the kind of conclusion of seeing dependent co-arising, seeing our heart and the dynamic of our heart 10,000 times is this faith which is really built on that deepening resolve not to cause harm and the deepening value of wanting to see clearly. And the two are very closely aligned, right? It's like not wanting to cause harm makes the mind, wisdom mind, like I really want to be awake. I don't want to go back to sleep. I want to pay attention. I want to see clearly. I really want to comprehend what's going on here as a direct, you know, this direct natural phenomenon. I just want to really want to see it. 
And the really wanting to see it sort of allows us to care more deeply about not causing harm. So they're feeding on each other. And then that, we go from helplessness and negligence, which is a very dead way to live a life, to actual, I mean, generally we don't use the word hope in Buddhism, but, you know, we feel, sense the path. And there's this very natural, appropriate gratitude, like, I've got something to do with my life. I can cultivate this path that leads to non-harming, the alleviation of suffering for myself and others, and to more and more freedom, right? So there's some joy. And that joy just matures into sort of more strong energy, rapture. So we feel enlivened. This is like inspired, right? That's that enlivening quality. So this arises, it's sort of ironic. This arises from seeing suffering, really getting to know suffering in ourselves. We observe it in others, right? So the lawfulness, we learn from everything we see, observing directly in our own heart, but then we take that growing understanding and we sense it. You know, it's a little different when we're observing other people. We're using our imagination and we're projecting like what we're learning here directly. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I see how that same dance is happening. Past causes, present effects, present causes, future effects. Round and round we go. Suffering begetting suffering. Suffering, there are these patterns of reacting, liking and not liking, being confused by sense contact, feeling compelled to grasp and become more and more. We really get the endlessness of it. It breaks our heart, like the Buddha says in one of the lines, we have all of us, each of us, all of us, we have all seen these cycles enough to be exhausted, to be ready to put it down. We just need to remember, we just need to access how many times we've done this. Long enough to be disenchanted, the Buddha says. Long enough to be dispassionate. Long enough to put it down. To put down what needs to be put down. It's not even so much we put it down, It's the seeing, the suffering, the feeling, sensing the path, the joy of that, the gratitude, the rapture. The heart feels safe, it relaxes, the tranquility, maturing into a kind of a a deeper happiness. Sukha is the Pali word. Contentment is part of that. Sukha, that more resonant happiness, which allows the mind to be still. Now that the mind's feeling so content, I'm not driven, I'm not compelled to fall into cycles of craving. I've got some temporary immunity. This is called having a peaceful sit, for example. Right? Because temporarily, my heart isn't messing around with craving. Why? Because I feel really good. Why do I feel really good? Because I understood something about suffering, 
and a lot of rapture, a lot of joy and rapture arose, a lot of gratitude. I got really tranquil. I felt safe in my life. felt more of a resonant contentment, ease in my heart. And everything just settled down. Craving just was put down temporarily. And my mind settled into a peaceful, clear state. This teaches us something really important about concentration. It's not something you struggle to get to. I'm really going to get to a peaceful place, a calm, clear place. It's a natural settling. There are natural causes for that settling into a deep state of concentration. And this is right here in this transcendent origination you know, that we've been studying. And Jan made a, a beautiful little cheat sheet for us from uh, listening to Sally Armstrong's talk that was linked to in last week's email. Uh, Sally Armstrong's a wonderful Dharma teacher, mostly at Spirit Rock, but she teaches at IMS and other places as well. And she's married to Guy Armstrong. They're kind of a dynamic duo, um, Dharma teachers, <clears throat> important uh, leaders at Spirit Rock for so many years, and uh, also at IMS. But anyway, she gave a talk on this particular uh, seeing awakening as a natural process. So in Buddhism, we call that tra- transcendent origination. It's di- uh, <coughs> translated in different ways. But it's like, okay, Buddha, please map out, because it was uh, started with a talk the Buddha gave on this, evidently, and then just recorded, and now we read it. And it's just the Buddha's answer to like his students asking him, So if it's all natural, if it's all just a natural process, what is the natural process of awakening? And the Buddha in his wisdom said, well, there's ignorance, right? And ignorance leads to leftover business in the heart, sankara, right? And then that leads to somebody having a mind and body, present moment effects. You got a mind and body, a sensitive mind and body, plus the reverberation of the ignorance and the sankaras. Those are those dispositions, right? And that's you. (laughs) And then, you know, then because you're not wise, you act on the sensitivity in those dispositions. So you crave and you grasp and you become somebody. And then you have another moment of suffering, which reinforces the ignorance, the unfinished business. But now there's enough space and perspective the mind, in a way, or you could say the wisdom, steps back and go, oh my God, this is suffering. I mean, that's a big, huge step for a human being to step back and go, oh my God, I'm suffering. Right? That's, a, that's already a huge step out of the net, out of the entanglement, isn't it? To have a very honest, clear recognition, you know what? I'm really suffering. That's not a small step. I mean, We sometimes think we're saying that, but we're totally in the suffering when we say it. But to to have some perspective and realize there is suffering going on right now, and some sense of it, some objectivity, space around it, right? So it's the whole cycle of dependent co-arising that we've been studying these last six weeks, but then because we've been studying for six weeks, right? Now we get to see it, and the heart says, oh, this is suffering, and faith is born. I don't think it has to be this way. 
I don't want it to be this way. It's a wholesome desire. I'm not going to I'm not going to plant any seeds that feeds this thing. Feeds this cycling. Right? I'm going to I'm going to be vigilant apamada, what the Buddha said right before he died. Practice with vigilance. Don't go back to sleep. So that means like staying present to our lived experience as a natural process that replicates suffering. And let it break your heart wide open. So we become more vigilant, more committed, not planting more seeds of suffering. Right? And that becomes the enlivening force, that compassionate, inspired, there's something to do with this life insight becomes really the driving force of our life. Whatever we do, you know, you might have a job as a doctor or you might be raising kids or whatever we're doing to kind of get by, that's that. But what we're really doing is we're growing, you know, through this natural process and understanding the supporting causes, we're growing this. And that's the purpose of the map is to kind of get a sense of how might we further this natural process. Some moments we may be really having some awakening. Some moments we may be completely oblivious. We may be just pushed around by the cycles of suffering. But wherever we are, there's something to do. Like if we're really locked and lost in the suffering, the step would be to step back. And there are different ways we've been talking about how to do it, like maybe just aim right at the feeling tone. Okay, can I be aware of how unpleasant it is without being confused by the pleasantness of the moment or how pleasant the moment is without being confused by the pleasantness of it. Because that's a weak link, the Buddha might say. Like when you're, 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 or you're lost in the cycling of suffering, then that's a good place to start. Okay, what's the feeling here? Can I bring, can I relate to the feeling, the underlying feeling with wisdom? It's just this feeling being known. And like all feelings I've had in my life, this feeling will come and go. Feelings don't last very long. I was in such a miserable state, as I mentioned, you know, when I was sick three, three or four weeks ago, and it went away, you know. But in the, you know, delusion, ignorance in the moment when I was really feeling miserable wants to say, this will never go away. But wisdom could have said, you know what? This will go away. Things will change. It's one of the few guarantees. It won't stay this way. Maybe it will get worse, but it won't stay this way. Guaranteed. (laughs) So, you know, and then we can just... so. we're mapping it all out so we get a sense of where we are with this. Okay, this moment I can be aware of the exposure of being a sensitive being and how sense contact causes dispositions to come to the surface. And that's a pretty confusing existential situation I'm in. Being radically sensitive with incessant sense experiences coming my way each sense experience triggering or bringing to the surface dispositions, right? That, seeing that or seeing any place inspires me like, oh yeah, this could go on for a long time. 
What the, the ignorance, part of the expression of the ignorance is I can beat the system. You know, by managing the conditions, by getting in there and uh, leaning in and exerting my volition to make the conditions a particular way. As if we'll get to a permanent place where we're safe. So part of stepping back and seeing the cycling of suffering is seeing that in, there, is no, there is no safety anywhere in this. That's why that word, I mean, it's a little tricky in Buddhism to use the word transcendence, because right, it's such an embodied practice. But it's really, there is a kind of transcendence, but the transcendence isn't about escaping, it's about transcending the cause for suffering, which is a wrong view or wrong understanding or not a helpful understanding. So that's what's being transcended. The tendency to misunderstand is being transcended. Let me just, uh, because this has a lot to do with that <coughs> growing wisdom. This is a couple discourses from the Buddha, or from the early discourses. It uh, doesn't involve the Buddha. So um, one of the things that were recorded are the poems of the elders, the nuns and monks at the time of the Buddha. And so this is a conversation between Mara, which is the personification of ignorance, and a practitioner, a monk or a nun named Sila. Sela, sorry, Sela. By whom has this puppet been created? This is Mara. So our own ignorance, our own sort of like uh, wily coyote, you know, in the Native American tradition. Because so, ignorance has some real intelligence. Have you noticed that in your mind? It's like when you, your mind wants to do something that you know isn't good for you. I mean, ignorance can be very compelling. I mean, I can't tell you how many times the voice that said, yeah, I, I, really know, I really get that you want to give this up or I really get that you want to stop doing this. It's really wise and we'll do that tomorrow. <laughs> I'm bit, and it's such a compelling way. It's like, yeah, we'll get to that. It's totally, I'm totally on board with that. <laughs> and now that we've agreed that this is going to end, let's go do it. <laughs> and it just seems so wise. Like, yeah, that's right, because we're going to give it up so then it's okay. And so this is Mara being wise. By whom has this puppet been created? Where is the maker of the puppet? Where has the puppet arisen? Where does the puppet cease? Right? This, these would seem like good questions. Right? Like, well, no, that's wisdom. That's not Mara. And then this wise practitioner responds, this puppet is not made by itself, nor is it made by another. It has come to be dependent on a cause. With the causes break up, it will cease. As when a seed is sown in a field, it grows depending on a pair of factors. It requires both the soil's nutri uh, nutrients and a steady supply of moisture. Just so the aggregates and elements 
And these six bases of sensory contact, right, the five physical senses and the thinking mind, have come to be dependent on a cause. With the causes break up, they will cease. Right? So what's the cause? Like being a sensory person, a sensitive person rather, with all that unfinished business, all those dispositions, this karmic situation arose because of causes. Now, it's so interesting, we've been conditioned to think that the cessation of this is the worst thing possible. It's just, it's, isn't that interesting? And yet, one of the few pleasures we can really count on, see if you can think what I'm thinking. Like, what's a, a pleasure, a, a more dependable than probably any pleasure in life? A very satisfying pleasure. What is it? Yeah, deep sleep in particular. Right? Isn't that true? Now, isn't that, what does that tell us? The thing that leaves the best taste, I'm not drawing any conclusions, I'm not suggesting you draw any conclusions. It just kind of cracks the mind a little, the habit-based mind a little, to realize, oh, that's kind of interesting, that the most, one of the most resonant, dependable happiness is that most nights, for a period of time, the heart puts everything down. And when the heart does that, I mean, we're not consciously aware, generally, in those moments. But when the heart does that, it's not like being strategic. Okay, I'm going to put everything down, but I better get this back, this sort of conscious awareness or this sensitive mind and body. No, no. There's no deal-making. It's just like, we're dropping this thing. right? And then somehow, that ends, and all that's left, You know, the re- residual of that was, boy, did that feel good. Whatever that was, I don't know. I, I mean, it's a complete mystery. Like, from the neurotic thinking mind, conceptualizing self-centered mind, we have no idea what those moments of deep sleep are because we're not there in any way. We just know what it feels like to come out of that place. So anyway, that helps us play with, because part of what the Buddha is suggesting as we get a sense of the cycles of suffering and we get a sense of no longer trusting it, right, and not knowing where we're going, because right, initially, remember, initially the only insight we have is this is the nature of suffering. We don't have, initially we don't have insight into like what Nibbana is, what freedom is, what heaven is, what transcendence is, right? We know that it's not this. That's what we know. It's not this. This is not helping anybody, the cycling of suffering, reacting to sense contact in ways that cause me and other people to suffer being distorted by that reactivity so that I'm in the next moment reborn with more dispositions, more likely to react to my sense experience in a way that makes things tight, which distorts the clarity in the mind, 
which leaves more unfinished business, which makes me more likely to react, and on and on. When we have some space and perspective, we know one thing. This is not the way. This is not helping anybody. I'm not going to contribute to this anymore. I'm, and what's born, like I said, part of that faith is this vigilance to pay attention to our life, be aware, and this deep commitment to not harm. I don't want to... I, I, we feel like we're part, like how I'm paying attention matters, right? So that's like we're not helpless in causing harm. We, part of seeing suffering is seeing how, how I'm relating right now. The sense of me paying attention is part of feeding this thing. That's why I'm inspired to pay attention and that's why that deep value of not harming is relevant because I see how I've been participating in it. The sense of me has been participating and I don't want to anymore. So then we don't know where we're going. We just know what needs to be abandoned. And that's another thing that kind of really distinguishes the Buddhist teaching is that like the height, the aspiration, Nibbana, means the cessation of this. That's such a provocative thing. That's why I mentioned deep sleep, because that's also a very provocative thing. So the height of spiritual aspiration is to participate with this in a way that this ceases, the cycling of suffering. To be wise, which is, this is that transcendent origination, that's how you participate in a way that causes this to unravel. You see this for what it is. That inspires the heart. Lots of energy. All that good energy allows the heart to feel safe and really relax and be happy. And all that tranquility and happiness allows the heart and mind to be peaceful, which allows it to see clearly because now the awareness isn't being distorted by suffering because it feels good. It's peaceful. So now the awareness is a much better instrument at seeing the, like, seeing the underlying causes, right? Having insight. So it's feeding the disenchantment, the dispassion. It's like really deepening the understanding that I have no desire to perpetuate this cycling of suffering. So, and to hate it doesn't help. So we just, we no longer feed it by no longer personalizing dependent co-arising, right? So there's this natural process, but now something's missing, self-view. And, and it's like a house of cards. When self-view is removed, from the cycling of suffering, the whole thing implodes. And then we get a little deeper taste, you know, that uh, I think in the chart you made, Sally used the word emancipation or relinquishment. It's another way that that word gets translated. But it's like a little taste of no selfing. So what is this, whatever this is, without the supporting cause of wrong view or selfing. That we don't know. 
that's something we want to taste or awaken to. What is this, mind, body, or whatever you want to call this, without that supporting cause? And then when that little taste, little insights of that, right? it just feeds the whole thing. More vigilance, more deep value and not harming, more rapture and joy, more calm, more happiness, more stillness, a better instrument to see the cycles of suffering and seeing it clearly, more disenchantment, more dispassion, more letting go, more tastes of not-self, of this without wrong view, without self-view, self-centered view. What's this without self-centered view? I mean, just in really simple ways, we touch this. This is not like way out there because we get a little bit of a flavor with something as simple as sitting with some ordinary knee pain or back pain. And we're sitting with it, you know, and we're trying all our Dharma moves, and uh, But every once in a while, you know, as we're kind of working with the pain in the knee, there's just moments, a few moments, you know, where it's the throbbing and nothing else. You know, it's just throbbing being known. And it's like a very different experience because in that moment or those moments, self-view isn't a predominant ingredient in what's happening. So we notice the experience of having a mind and body with knee pain and maybe even with not liking, but none of that is interpreted as me or mine. So it's almost like the wrong view, the self-view, the selfing, is kind of the glue that makes the present moment seem familiar. So that's why it's such a radically different experience, it's, it's probably impossible, it is impossible to comprehend intellectually what the experience is like when self-view isn't supporting how experience is constructed. Right? So we have to experience it to really sense, get a deep, immediate sense of how liberating that moment is. And it's a very natural process of just following what the Buddha says. And it's really like the two main ingredients to really uh, pay attention. And we'll talk about moments of liberation in the small group. But again, really keep a simple, open mind about liberation because we know when we're not liberated, you know, we're really tight about something. So... Remember, it's just that spectrum. So less of that, what's that like? And maybe moments when you're really less of that. Like no apparent contraction. So maybe I'll leave it here. So I have about nine minutes or so for questions or your own comments about some of the things I spoke about tonight. And like I mentioned, next week we'll have small groups and we'll talk more about liberation. I'll send out that cheat sheet that Jan put together from uh, Sally's talk, and uh, you can go ahead and read the articles and other, like Sally, listen to Sally's talk that I sent out last week. And uh, yeah, so comments or questions that come to mind before we end. Yeah, Jen, please. So through this 
class, there's been an inkling of understanding about no self for the first time in 20 years of studying Buddhism. So thank you for that. Um, and when it's the incoming contact um, from the outside world coming in, I, I'm getting a, just a sense of what it's like not to take that personally. But my question is, when it's internal action, where does the idea of no self kind of intersect with responsibility or accountability? And I have a really trivial example, which happened several weeks ago, when you were just in the middle of the um, sit, and we were, you were talking about removing yourself from the problem, and then there, there's not the problem. At that moment, my cell phone went off, and it was on silent, but it was still vibrating. It was still noticeable to me. And so I was thinking about that. And I said, okay, well, I could just say it's not my cell phone. It's not my problem. It's not my cell phone. But then that wasn't, that didn't feel right to me. That didn't feel authentic. So where does no self intersect with action and accountability and responsibility? Right. But, but the understanding is everything is natural. So wanting to shut it off, wanting to remember to shut it all the way down next time. Those are all impersonal arisings. So why not just let the whole thing play itself out, like including caring about how everybody is affected by the vibration of my phone, caring about being more vigilant in the future. You know, it's like, the not not projecting self on the any kind of dynamic that's unfolding for us, not projecting self on it actually frees up engagement and creativity, right? Because it's it's not there's no preference for passivity over action. That would be a self view. Like to highlight or to prefer Passivity could only come from self-view, right? It's a dualistic point of view. Not doing is better than doing. But not self-view is just understanding that it's all a natural process. My desire to do something, my fear that if I do it, people will think I'm not a good Buddhist because I'm acting, you know, I'm moving quickly and I know Buddhists don't move quickly. They're always slow and... Like zombies, the more zombie-like you are, the more you're a good Buddhist. Or whatever kind of projections or you know, stereotypes we've fallen into. Awareness just sees it all and sees it all as natural process. So yeah, that's a really neurotic thing arising and wanting to express itself. That's a really seemingly wise thing that's arising. And even the knowing of all this is also nature and not self. You know, so even the capacity of the mind to witness what's going on is also seen and understood as a natural process. There's nothing that's not a natural process here. So we can just let... And, you know, the the scary thing is whatever wisdom there is that's sort of showing up in the moment, that's the wisdom there is showing up in the moment. And whatever ignorance there is, that's also what's there. So we're, we're really taking... Like by being aware of it all and allowing it to be what it is, a natural process, the learning is actually heightened. So if a lot of unskillful, unhelpful tendencies have gotten triggered, 
we wouldn't be able to stop that anyway. So the second best thing is to see those unskillful tendencies that have gotten triggered clearly for what they are. And by understanding that this moment is a natural process, it really frees wisdom up just to see things as they are. Oh yeah, that's, that really wasn't helpful. And, and wisdom will see that in a way that will be less likely, less likely to forget because it was just observing, right? That part of the natural process was just observing. So it really saw without any obscuration. Well, that wasn't helpful. It makes a really powerful impression on the mind stream. So that, but it takes some trust that we'll become a better and better person, more nimble, creative person, by emphasizing the value in non-harming and the value in seeing clearly and just cutting everything else loose. It's not about being passive. It's about, it's about the best kind of engagement. I'm showing up with this powerful value and not harming and powerful value to want to be close, want to be intimate, want to see, be right in the middle so I can see and feel everything that's playing itself out here. Because how else will we know whether it's skillful or not if we're not right in the middle? So this, like the um, consequence of this is wanting to be skillful at some point has to be jettisoned so that we can put more emphasis on seeing. Like we go from the value of non-harming to the expression of that value, so I'm going to pay attention with real vigilance because I don't want to cause harm. And I'm not going to stay there like, I don't want to cause harm, I don't want to cause harm because wisdom really says, okay, you don't want to cause harm, what would be the best thing to do? And what we learn is be radically present is the best thing to do and let everything else go. Yeah, thanks, Jan. Any last comments before we end? Just a minute or two left. Otherwise, you can save it. Yeah, Dave, please finish this up. Yeah, I really appreciated during the meditation this gratitude for the path. And then I was thinking about the, the teachings and the practices and teachers and, and the Sangha. And that really, you know, just I looked in the mirror and lately I've been in. The, kind of in a rut where I, I've i been looking at concentration and mindfulness and how, you know, an effort and how those things might interact because I, I feel like I haven't been very concentrated and it's more, it, I've got to focus on that and then probably that scarcity mentality sets in and, and it's like I can't, like a variation of that song, I can't get no, but it's concentration and it's just like yeah. that keeps <laughs> popping in my mind and it's like, it's it's it, it makes it almost humorous now to to when I take a step back and see see that process. Yeah, and like with you know I know because we've talked, Dave, that you you've been accessing a lot of that faith energy and that gratitude and that joy, and so now with this map, you can like check it out. Is it true if I really pay attention to the joy? that it will develop into a more energetic rapture that will be more um, impactful, like a deeper spiritual safety, which will be that calm and that tranquility, right? Which will just mature into kind of a more easeful happiness, contentment, contented happiness. 
which will be the cause for the mind dropping in. So instead of wanting the mind to drop into a still place, really um, practice where you're at. Oh yeah, I've been having more gratitude come up, my more joy. So really like let that in, like let that have its effect. And how do we do that? We notice it. That's all. You just I'm like that's a nice instruction, yeah, notice joy. But you know, it's funny that we don't really give it the attention it deserves. We feel this is sort of uh, one of those neurotic, like, I don't deserve this joy. Or because I'm feeling some joy, I should get to work. No, no. Because we're feeling joy, we should pay attention to it. Not with attachment, but like really be intimate with it. Really let it have its effect. When there is joy, let it have its effect. Because then it will mature to rapture, a more resonant, energetic kind of which is very affecting for the mind and body. It triggers safety and tranquility. Like, I've been wanting to feel this good for a long time, and now I'm feeling this good. I'm just going to relax. I don't have to go anywhere. So that tranquility comes right out of that more intense experience of rapture. It's really so lawful. And the key is to practice where we're at instead of where we want to be. Because we can only get involved in terms of like how we show up, how we relate. We can only relate to what's actually real in this moment. And that's our participation, relating with what's real in the moment. And if we want it to be different than this, then the way we're relating with the present moment is by being deluded. Right? Like if I'm thinking, I don't want this moment, I want this moment, that's delusion, right? That's like an unwillingness to connect with the only thing we can connect with. So it's nine o'clock. Let's just put down the words and take a few moments to take a breath or two together. Appreciating our spiritual ancestors all the wise women, the wise men, the folks before us, appreciating their sincere practice. They had busy and complicated lives like we do. And somehow they found a way to practice and develop their wisdom and compassion. And somehow they passed the teachings along one generation after another So as difficult as it might be, it's our turn now to do our best, to be sincere, become wiser, kinder human beings, and to pass on these wisdom teachings. So may that be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.